This semester we've been talking about Christian living, so we talked about uh, kind of the, the implications of salvation, we've talked about sanctification both through the lens of mortification of sin and vivification of the Spirit. Uh, we have talked about uh, things like death and resurrection and what happens to believers between death and resurrection and what's called the intermediate state, and so now we're moving on from uh, what we've just kind of titled Christian living and now getting into ecclesiology. What is ecclesiology? It's the study of the church, or the doctrine of the church, and so we started that uh, last week, and we'll, we will be in ecclesiology the rest of the, uh, of the semester. And so I want to begin just by talking about why does this matter. This might, for some of us, this might seem like a uh, sort of ivory tower thing. It might, might seem like it's just all academics and not at all practical. And so I, I just want to th- uh, think together about some of the practical benefits of ecclesiology. Uh, this particular subject touches upon who should take communion, so whether or not you should take communion each week, who should get baptized, whether or not you get uh, baptized, what does God expect of you in regards to serving, in regards to giving, in regards to submitting to church leadership, how should a church be uh, organized, what should be our purpose or goal as individual Christians and as a corporate uh, body, how should you respond to conflict within the body, How should you respond to overt sin in another uh, believer? If or when should you leave a church? So this is practical. All of these things that we're talking about uh, are uh, are really uh, important for us. Uh, and applicable if we take the time to think through it. So we don't do this for every lesson. We don't talk about all of the practical implications, but everything we teach each and every week, if you spend time kind of peeling layers off of the onion, you find that there is some profound practicality to it. And so the things that we want to talk about this week in particular as we talk about the nature and the purpose of the church uh, are four questions in particular. We're going to talk about what is the church, when did the church begin, Who is the church, and why does the church exist? That's what we're going to talk about today. What is the church? When did the church begin? Who is the church, and why does the church uh, exist? I want to begin with what is the church. There's lots of ways that you could answer that. One of the historical ways that it's been answered is through the uh, Nicene Creed. And so you might remember as we talked a little bit about Christology and Trinitarianism, you might remember the Nicene Creed, uh, which came from the Council of Nicaea in 325 uh, AD, and they're responding to this heretic named uh, Arius, and uh, he's one of those guys like Pelagius, when you hear his name, you can just boo, uh, because Arius taught that Jesus was created. Jesus himself was not God. He was a created being. He is lesser uh, than, uh, than God. And so in their statement, they uh, write this kind of statement on the beginnings, the foundations of Trinitarianism and uh, the deity of Christ. But uh, at the end, they say, we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And this is kind of the foundation Uh, the foundational sort of definition or description of what the church is for hundreds of of years. These four adjectival attributes of the universal church. You see that it's, uh, it's unity, that there is one. It's sanctity, that it's holy. It's Catholicity, that it's Catholic. And uh, it's uh, apostolicity, that it is apostolic, 
All right, so you see the, uh, the unity, that there is one church, there's not many churches, there's not, uh, Jesus is not a polygamist, he doesn't have multiple uh, brides, he also doesn't have multiple bodies, there is only one church, so even though it has multiple branches, it's kind of like a tree, right, there's one tree, and that tree has multiple branches, likewise with the church, there is only one church, although that one church consists of, uh, of various branches, the various branches of uh, Eastern Orthodoxy, of Roman Catholicism, of Protestantism, and of, uh, of the various denominations within Protestantism. Now, some of those are purer than others in regards to their, uh, to their doctrine, but there is only one church. So that's the unity. There's also a holiness aspect to the church, sanctity. Uh, that we are to be separate, we are to be dis- distinct, we are called to, uh, to worship God. There's a particular uh, disposition that we have uh, towards sin, and, uh, and so that's holiness. There's also Catholicity, that we are a Catholic church. Now, that doesn't mean Roman Catholic. At this point, uh, Roman Catholicism doesn't really even uh, exist. The, the, uh, the kind of the Roman Catholic uh, priest is just coming into uh, prominence uh, at this time, but this just this is a word that means universal. When you hear the word Catholic, don't necessarily think Roman Catholic. That's not how the authors of the Nicene Creed mean it. They just simply mean universal. That's what the word Catholic means. It comes from Acts nine thirty one. In Acts uh, nine thirty one, it uh, it says uh, something about the church that is throughout all of Judea and Samaria and Galilee. And so the word Catholic is actually derived from two Greek words, kath and uh, hollis, kath hollis, and uh, not like Tim hollis, but uh, a, a word that means all. And so kath hollis means throughout all. So when we say the Catholic church, we mean the church that is throughout all the world, throughout the entire world, the universality uh, of the church. So there is uh, one holy Catholic and then apostolic church. In other words, it's built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. It accords with their teachings. It's tethered to their writings. There's something about the church being founded upon uh, the Scripture. So this speaks to the purity of the church, the orthodoxy uh, of the church. And what's really interesting is you have this sort of interplay between these uh, various uh, attributes Whereas kind of unity and Catholicity speak to the same thing. There is this oneness to the church, and the church is universal. And then the sanctity and the apostolicity of the church kind of play off of each other. And what's interesting is the more that you stress uh, the unity and the Catholicity of the church, the more in danger you are of kind of uh, neglecting the fact that the church is built upon the apostolic writings. And the more that you focus upon the sanctity and the uh, apostolicity of the church, the more that you begin to uh, kind of neglect the unity and Catholicity uh, of the church. The reason that happens is because as you become more and more convinced of a particular doctrine, whether you are, let's say that uh, you can be convinced of Calvinism versus Arminianism or a particular form of gender roles or whatever it might be, the more that you begin to kind of uh, be insular and not associate with other churches that don't agree with you. And so there is this interesting tension that exists uh, within this, but the goal is to hold all of these things together, uh, even as they're pulling in different directions at time, that we should be uh, pursuing unity and sanctity and Catholicity and apostolicity 
Uh, and so that is the, uh, that's one way that you could kind of answer the question, what is the church? The historical answer, the church is this uh, one holy, Catholic, apostolic uh, body. There's other ways that you could answer the question, what is the church? You could look at the various metaphors or images that exist in Scripture for the church. And these are these various complementary images. They're not in contradiction to each other. The same way that you would say that I am a father, I am a brother, I am a husband, I am a pastor, I'm all of these different things, and those things aren't actually in competition. Likewise, there's all these different sort of uh, perspectives, like the church is a prism, and the way that you shine light through it, you're going to see a different uh, reflection. And so the, body, uh, the Bible would speak of the church as the body of Christ. And so there's different things that you understand about the church by this image of the body that you wouldn't if you were looking at just the image of the bride of Christ, which is another one, the bride of Christ. We're also a family. First Timothy 5 talks about, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. So we're a body of Christ. We're the bride of Christ. We're a family. John 15 speaks of us as branches on a vine. Romans 11 compares us to an olive tree. First Corinthians 3, a field of crops. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3, again, a building. Matthew 13 or John 4, a harvest. 1 Peter 2, 5, a new temple built not with literal stones, but with these things called living stones. Um, 1 Peter 2, 5 calls us a, a group of priests, a holy priesthood. Hebrews 3, God's house. Uh, 1 Timothy 3, the pillar and bulwark of, uh, of the truth. And so all of these different metaphors and images are another way that you could describe or you could answer the question, what is the church? The church is all of these things. And again, these aren't in competition. They're complementary. They help us to better understand just how this holistic nature of, uh, of the body and bride and all of that of Christ. But the way that I want to do it is I want to kind of tackle this from a definitional standpoint. What is the church based on a, uh, a definition? And so uh, we will begin with this word ecclesia. We talked about it last week. The, the, uh, where we get the word ecclesiology from is from the Greek word ecclesia. Uh, this is the transliteration in English. This is how it looks in, uh, in Greek. And, uh, and so ecclesia is a word that means a gathering or an assembly or a, uh, a congregation. And the writers of the New Testament, they, they choose this word, ecclesia, because its everyday meaning, which is again an, an assembly or a gathering, was a good fit for their purposes. As they are describing what uh, this church is, in every New Testament usage, while ecclesia can mean more than a gathering, it never means less than a, uh, a gathering. It never means something that's completely unrelated to a, uh, to a gathering. By the way, this is one of the reasons why I dislike this phenomenon, this modern phenomenon that is like online churches. We don't really go to church. You just simply kind of log on to church uh, at home. There's a lot of things that are possible to do online. There's a lot of things that are even preferable to do online, like paying bills, right? This is a blessing for us that you don't have to. Maybe you still use a check uh, and checkbook and that kind of stuff, and you balance your budget. But uh, in general, it's a blessing that we now have online banking and online bill play and those kinds of things. But there are other things that you just simply can't accomplish online, like gathering with other believers and taking communion. And, uh, and so, the, uh, the meaning of the word kind of stresses this idea that we are to gather, that we're to be together. 
And, uh, and so that's ecclesia. You might have heard uh, that uh, this word ecclesia is derived from a prefix ek, meaning out of, and uh, kaleo, meaning called. And so the church is the called out ones. Uh, we talked about this a little bit as we, uh, we talked about hermeneutics. This is what's called the etymological or the root fallacy. Are Christians called out of sin? Yes or no? Yes. Are Christians, in some sense, called out of the world? Yes. But is that what ecclesia means? No. No, that's not what, uh, that, uh, what it means. You, you see uh, in Greek literature there's ecclesias of politicians. There's ecclesias of philosophers. There's ecclesias of mathematicians or whatever it, uh, it might be. So the word just means gathering. It doesn't have the necessary sort of implication of being called out. Again, this is the etymological or root fallacy. We talked about this when we talked about hermeneutics. Sometimes the etymology of a word, that is the the derivation of the word, the origin of the word, sometimes that's helpful. I've mentioned before the story of being in South Sudan and somebody was giving an illustration and they mentioned a catfish. And, And our particular translator had no idea what a catfish is He's never heard that English word before, so he just used the Arabic word for cat and the Arabic word for fish. And when you put those together, it doesn't work as well as it does in English because you get some sort of a hybrid mutant creature that is half cat and half fish. Now, how do we get the word catfish? Because a catfish kind of looks like a cat. It has whiskers, right? But that's the only aspect of it that's cat-like, right? You don't just take parts of a cat and parts of a fish and merge them together. And, uh, and so sometimes it can be helpful for us to understand a catfish has whiskers. Other times it's not. Does a butterfly have anything to do with butter? Or I can't believe it's not butter or anything like that. No, it has nothing to do with butter. And so sometimes the root of a word doesn't help us understand its meaning at all. That's the case with ecclesia. By the time that the, uh, the uh, authors of Scripture are writing Scripture, this word has no relationship whatsoever to being called out. That might have been the original meaning, but by the time that the authors are using the word, that is not what it means. It simply means an assembly or a gathering. The emphasis is less on being called out of something and more on being called together. Does that make sense, the difference there? The emphasis is less that you've been called out of sin, although that is theologically true. That is not the meaning of the word. The meaning of the word is that you've been called together. Right, which should influence the way that we think about the church, this idea of gathering, this idea of being an, uh, an assembly. And so, as Zach mentioned last week, there's about a dozen or so different ways that, uh, that the, the word uh, church can be used. And so, your definition of the church depends on the particular usage that you are talking about. Today, we're talking more about this universal church, this church that is one holy, Catholic, apostolic sort of church. In future weeks, we'll talk about the particular nuances of like a local church, but today we're kind of giving the the bigger, broader concept of the uh, universal church, uh, the church that we would talk about as we uh, read passages like Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. That doesn't mean Parkway Church. That means the universal church or uh, Ephesians 1, 22 through 23. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. So this universal church. And so a definition uh, of that by uh, Wayne Grudem. He says the church is the community of all true believers for all time. The church is the community of all true believers for all time. 
Or another definition that you could use um, uh, is the church is the collection or community of all who have been redeemed by Christ through faith into fellowship with God and each other. The church is universal and local, visible and invisible. We'll talk a little bit about those as we go. But those are some definitions of the church. That is what the church is. The church is the community of all true believers for all time. So let's talk about when did the church uh, begin. Grudem says that the church uh, consists of all true believers for all time. Raise your hand if you've ever heard that the church began at Pentecost. Anyone ever heard that? All right. That is, uh, that is based on a view of, uh, of Scripture that uh, kind of encom- uh, encapsulates this divide in evangelicalism. There's this divide in evangelicalism between two different ways of interpreting Scripture. This is an interfraternal debate. In other words, this is a debate that happens amongst Christians. Uh, and, uh, and so neither view is heretical. I think one is more right than the other. But the two views are called covenantalism and dispensationalism. If you've ever heard that the church began at Pentecost, you've heard dispensational teaching. That is not where we land as we look at, uh, at ecclesiology. We've talked a little bit about that uh, in, in previous weeks. But again, you can be a faithful believer. You can love Jesus. You can love the scriptures and all that and be dispensational. So this is not a, an area of, uh, that we should be uh, fighting for or dying for or anything like that. But let me explain uh, a little bit. Uh, of, uh, of the issue. Here's the, here's the question uh, as it relates to dispensational and covenantal theology on when did the church begin. When the Bible makes promises to Israel in the Old Testament, are those promises to be fulfilled in a literal, national, physical Israel? That's the dispensational position. Or are they uh, to be fulfilled in a quote-unquote spiritual Israel? That is, uh, that is the church. That's the covenantal position. So dispensationalism, they, it tends to stress discontinuity between the church and Israel. That the church is this new body. Israel was a distinct body. Dispensationalism stresses discontinuity. That's the way that you can remember it. Dispensationalism, discontinuity. Whereas covenantalism stresses continuity. That there is continuity between the Old Testament and and, uh, and the New Testament in regards to Israel and, uh, and the church. So in dispensationalism, God makes promises to literal, to physical, to national uh, Israel, which must be fulfilled in literal, physical, national Israel. There is thus this discontinuity between Israel and, uh, and the church. There are distinct people. They're distinct bodies. Whereas in uh, covenantal theology, God makes promises to spiritual Israel, and those are fulfilled in spiritual Israel. That is, uh, that is the church. There is more continuity between Old Testament Israel and the New Testament uh, church. Now again, we uh, here at Parkway tend to align more with covenantal theology on, uh, on this particular issue. There are other areas where we don't align as much with covenantal theology, in particular uh, with uh, infant baptism and with the composition of, uh, of the church. Because of their commitment to continuity, remember, uh, covenantalism, continuity. In Israel, you would circumcise babies, and so now in the church, covenantals baptize babies. And so this would be an area where we would actually see discontinuity. But, uh, but when it comes to the uh, question of when did the church begin, uh, we are more aligned with covenantal theology. So dispensationals say that the church began 
at uh, Pentecost, whereas covenantals say that, the church, that God has always had one people, that God has always had one gathering, one assembly of the redeemed that stretches all the way back into Israel and indeed stretches beyond Israel all the way back to these characters like Noah or Methuselah or even Adam and Eve, that they were the kind of the first church members, uh, if you will. So I'm going to give you some reasons why we land more in a covenantal view of continuity between the church and Israel. That the church doesn't just begin at Pentecost, that the church is actually something that stretches all the way back in time to whenever God first redeemed the first uh, people. And, uh, and so here's a few reasons for that. Number one, because God's plan is always for the whole world. There's a way to read the Bible that kind of finds the church to be the parenthesis in God's plan. You read the Bible as if it's about Israel, 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 parentheses, church, for a season, and then Israel, Israel, Israel. That's not the way that I think we should read the Bible. I think instead we should read God's heart for the world, God's heart for the world, God's heart for the world, God's heart for the world. Then this parentheses that is God using Israel, but what does he use Israel for? To accomplish the redemption of the world. Your Bible doesn't begin in Genesis 12 with the calling of Abraham. Your Bible begins in Genesis 1 with the creation of the world. Your Bible doesn't end with the redemption of just literal, physical, national Israel. Your Bible ends in Revelation with this vision of people from all tongues and tribes and nations worshiping together. Even God's initial call to Abram shows his heart for the world. Genesis 12, 1 through 3, the very first mentions of, uh, of Abraham, before he's called Abraham, when he's called Abram. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And listen to this, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God's plan is always for the world. The church isn't the parentheses in God's plan. Israel is the parentheses in God's plan in order to accomplish his heart for the entire world to know him. That's the first reason. The second reason that we align more with this covenantal view that sees the church as beginning all the way back uh, in the Old Testament is we see hints of the church in the Old Testament. When the New Testament authors uh, describe Old Testament Israel, they use this word. They use this word for church. They use this word for assembly or gathering. They use the same word that's used of the New Testament church. In, uh, in Acts 7.38, this is the one who was in the congregation, that word ecclesia, in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. And the Old Testament itself uses the word, uh, uses the word ecclesia in the Septuagint. What's the Septuagint? Greek translation, Greek translation of the, uh, of the Old Testament. It was uh, what most of the Hellenistic Jews, that is most of the Jews who were familiar with Greek uh, literature and so forth, would have uh, been familiar with in the first century. And, uh, and so most of the, uh, the biblical authors are going to quote from the Septuagint. And so in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, in Psalm 22, 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the... Ecclesia, the congregation, I will praise you. Or Deuteronomy 31, 12, assemble, ecclesia, assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to all, to, to all the words of this law. Is that not what we do 
on a weekly basis. We assemble the men, the women, the, the children, and the sojourners to come and to hear and to learn to fear the Lord our God and to be careful to do all the words of uh, the, this new law. So when the uh, biblical authors are thinking of a word, what is a word that we can use to describe the church? They intentionally choose a word that would overlap with this concept of Israel that we read in the Old Testament rather than coming up with some entirely new word. That's the second reason. The third reason is that Scripture emphasizes the unity of the body, that there is only one body. In dispensational theology, you have this danger of splitting the church from Israel In fact, in historic classical dispensationalism, that's what you had. You had some teachers who taught that kind of Israel lived on the earth forever, and then the church lived in the sky and the heavens forever, and ne'er the two shall meet. And uh, now that's not what most dispensationals hold today. I think that would actually be close to a heretical view, uh, but uh, that's not where most dispensationals teach today. But there is always this, this tension in dispensationalism between dividing what God has been uh, meant to be uh, together. Ephesians 2, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, that's the hostility between Jew and Gentile, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. We could keep reading, but you see that same sort of idea throughout there, that we are intended to be one. Scripture is emphasizing the unity of the body uh, and that there is only one body. Romans 11, we talked about that as well, that you're grafted onto the same olive tree, that Jews and Gentiles share in the same rich root of the olive tree. It's not like there's two different trees. God loves the Jewish tree and God loves the Gentile tree. And there's only one tree, and it's composed of both Jew and Gentile. Another reason, believing Gentiles are regarded as Jews. We've talked about that as we've preached through uh, Romans, that, uh, that it's those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, whether you are Jew or Gentile. If you have the faith of Abraham, you are a, uh, an heir of his uh, promises. In addition to that, unbelieving Jews are not regarded as Jews. Jesus called the Pharisees brood of vipers, literally offspring of serpents. You're not related to your father Abraham. You're related more to your father Satan is what he is uh, saying to them. We read about this in Romans 9. It's not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. If you don't share the faith of Jacob and Isaac and Abraham, then you are not descended from them. So unbelieving Jews are not regarded as Jews. Romans 2, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. Another reason New Testament promises are not merely fulfillments of Old Testament expectations, but expansions of those expectations. So think about the land in the Old Testament. There's this promise that you will inherit the land, right? And in the context of the Old Testament, that piece, that parcel of land is not very big. It's uh, basically just a little bit bigger than what we would know as uh, modern-day Israel, all right? Now, what's the New Testament promise? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall inherit what? This little parcel of land? No, they shall inherit the earth. 
There's an expansion of the promises from this little parcel of land to the entire earth. That's the expansion or circumcision, not mere circumcision of the flesh, but indeed the circumcision of your entire spirit, body, your heart, or the Sabbath. The Sabbath in the Old Testament is just one day in the midst of seven. In the New Testament, Sabbath is just this eschatological rest that you and I will experience. Not that there is no labor in the new earth, but there's no longer any labor for sanctification or justification or anything like that. We rest. And, uh, and so likewise with the nature of the people of God, that whereas in the Old Testament the promises are made to Israel, there is this expansion of who Israel is in light of the New Testament. So imagine this, uh, this illustration. Imagine that I promise everyone in this room that I'm going to give you $5 next week. Right? And you come into the room next week, and I give you $10 million. But I also give everyone that is uh, currently serving with preschool or with elementary kids, I give them $10 million each. Have I been unfaithful because I've invited more people? Have I been unfaithful to you? Does anyone feel cheated by that? If you feel cheated by me giving you $10 million, you've got bigger issues, right? No, you don't feel cheated by that. I've not been unfaithful to my promises. Likewise, God hasn't been unfaithful to Israel if he makes promises to Israel and then fulfills them and expands them and invites others into it. That's the concern that dispensationalism tends to have is that you're being unfaithful, that God God is being unfaithful if he doesn't fulfill his promises in literal, physical, national Israel. And I say, no, he's being more than faithful He's being gracious, inviting others in and giving even more than he had promised. And the last reason is because Jesus is the true heir. He's the true Israel. He is the fulfillment of the promises. So the question isn't really, are the promises fulfilled in Israel or the promises fulfilled in the church? I think the correct answer is the promises were fulfilled in Jesus. That's the answer. The promises are not fulfilled in ethnic Israel The promises are not fulfilled in spiritual Israel. The promises are fulfilled in the true Israelite. Jesus is the true Israelite. He has 12 uh, disciples as Israel had 12 tribes. He's the one who was tested in the wilderness as Israel was tested in the wilderness. He's the one that taught a new law from the mountain. He's the one who was faithful uh, in the garden. He brought about a new exodus from a stronger enemy, and on and on we could go. And this is how the Bible is going to deal in the New Testament with the promises. Galatians 3.16, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, but notice what it says next. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. According to Paul in Galatians 3, who is the heir of all of the promises that were made to Abraham? Jesus. He is the only offspring who is faithful. He is the only offspring that has actually fulfilled the conditions and attained the inheritance. So the question is not, is it Israel or is it the church? The answer is, it's Jesus. He is the heir of the promises. 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it's through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. So Jesus is the true and better Israel. He's the heir of all the promises. So whether we call ourselves the spiritual Israel or whether we call ourselves the church, we know that any inheritance that we have is simply because we are in him. So let's do a thought experiment for a second in answering this question 
When does the church begin? And I want to remove the English word church because I think that can be confusing. And I want to replace it with the word assembly. That's what ecclesia means, assembly. So let me ask you this question. If I ask you the question, when does the church begin? You might be confused by dispensational theology and think that it begins at Pentecost. But if I ask the question, when does the assembly of redeemed people begin? That changes the way that you answer the question because you recognize the assembly of the redeemed stretches all the way back into the Old Testament, stretches all the way back beyond Israel into um, uh, the the pre-Israel patriarchs and saints and so forth. So, as summary, Wayne Grudem says this, I think it's in your notes, therefore, even though there are certainly new privileges and new blessings that are given to the people of God in the New Testament, Both the usage of the term church in Scripture and the fact that throughout Scripture God has always called His people to assemble to worship Himself indicate that it is appropriate to think of the church as constituting all the people of God for all time, both Old Testament believers and New Testament believers. So that is, what is the church and when did the church begin? Let's talk about who is the church. I just said we tend to be more covenantal in our uh, theological convictions as it relates to when the church begins, but we tend to disagree when it comes to this uh, question, who is the church, especially as it relates to the nature of church membership. So you have kind of two historic views. One uh, is a view that says that the church should be this mixed body, this mixed body of both believers and unbelievers, regenerate and unregenerate. Kind of leave the tares with the wheat and God will sort it all out uh, in the end. The other view is that the church should be a pure body. The church should not consist of both believers and unbelievers, but should only consist of believers. Which one do you think covenantal theology holds to? That it's a mixed body. That's what covenantal. Remember, there is this uh, aspect. Covenantal theology, does it stress continuity or discontinuity? Continuity, right? Dispensationalism, discontinuity. Covenantalism, continuity. So it stresses continuity. In Old Testament Israel, was Old Testament Israel a mixed body or a pure body? Was it pure? Was everybody who existed in Israel a believer? No. So it was a mixed body, right? Not everybody loved and trusted Yahweh. Not everybody actually followed after. There's, there's all these examples you could think of, Korah and Achan and all of the, the false and evil and wicked kings and, and so forth. And so Israel was this mixed body. You circumcised your kids whether or not they were believers. Didn't matter. They were eight days old. They couldn't believe yet, right? So there was this mixed body. It was intentionally a mixed body. You were an Israelite whether you loved uh, Yahweh or not. So the question is, should that be the case with the church? Are you considered a Christian even if you don't love Christ? And the answer to that is no. So there's discontinuity, at least on this particular aspect. And, uh, and so a couple of reasons for holding that. So Baptist theology, which is our tradition, Baptist uh, theology in particular does not hold to the idea of a mixed church. We hold to the idea that the church should be composed of only believers in other words, we think this is an area of discontinuity. So a couple of reasons for that. One is because the son of a, uh, of a Jew is a Jew. The son of an Israelite in ancient Israel is an Israelite whether they believed or loved or trusted Yahweh or not. The son of a Christian is not necessarily a Christian. All right? You're born into Israel, but how do you come into the church? 
You're reborn. You're not born into the church. No one is born a Christian. You're reborn a Christian. That's the importance of the doctrine of regeneration. In John chapter 3, you must be born again. So there's an aspect in which I would agree with my Pado baptist brothers and sisters. By the way, we'll talk about baptism in a couple of weeks. There's an aspect that, that I agree with them. Should we baptize? Should we admit infants into the church? And I think the answer to that is yes. I just have a different definition of infancy in light of the New Testament. That it's not physical intimacy. Uh, intimacy. Wow. That's going to make it on a, a best of... Uh, audio track or something. It's just not physical infancy, it's spiritual infancy, right? That you're born again. That's how you make it into the church. That's how you should be baptized. Spiritual infants. The moment that you're, you're, you're born again, you should be uh, baptized. Another reason for holding this is because the natures of the covenants and the natures of the covenant communities are different. We've talked about this passage quite a bit. This is probably the most important passage in the Old Testament for understanding the differences between the Old Covenants and the New Covenant. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Why do we call the New Testament the New Testament? Why do we call it the New Covenant? The Old Testament itself says it's going to be a new covenant. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, now listen to this, not like the covenant. Is that continuity language or discontinuity language? Discontinuity, right? Something is not like, it's not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Now we might then say, well, but what aspect of discontinuity? It says there's discontinuity, it's not like, but what aspect? And so it answers the question. Here is the discontinuity. I will put, uh, uh, I will make with them the, the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So, what's unique? What's new? What's distinct about the new covenant? that everyone, for you to be a part of this community, all of these things are true, which was not true of Israel, that you are forgiven, that you know, that you love, that you trust Yahweh, that your sins are remembered no more. So everyone who is a member of this new covenant community has God's law written on their hearts. They, knows God, they know God, not just know about Him, and they are forgiven. So the church is different from the nation of Israel in that sense. There is this discontinuity between them. So we would say that the church only includes believers and that thus local churches should only include uh, believers, that you shouldn't baptize your unbelieving kids as part of the covenant community. Again, we'll talk more about baptism in a couple of weeks. But now if you're a covenantal, you might say, aha, I've got you, but you have unbelievers who are members of your churches, to which I would say, well, maybe. There might be unbelievers who are actually members of Parkway, but the reason for that is not because we've gone out and found people that we know are unbelievers and say, hey, come and be a part of our church. It's because we're not omniscient. We do due diligence. We sit down with people. We ask them questions. We hear their testimony. We have them write out the gospel. We do everything in our power to ascertain whether or not they are believers, 
but we're not omniscient. We don't know at the end of the day if they are or uh, are uh, not. And it seems like even the apostles didn't know with perfect clarity. I, I am sure that they assumed that Judas was a believer, but he wasn't. I'm sure they assumed that Simon the magician was a believer, and it appears like he wasn't. Or Demas, who Paul later says, in one, in one book of the Bible, he says, Demas is helpful to me. Later on, he writes and says, Demas, in love with this present world, has departed from me. And so there's this tension there. So uh, I have an illustration that I think is, uh, is helpful. I thought of it uh, this week. Uh, so imagine that you're baking a cake. What are some ingredients that are in a cake? Flour, eggs, sugar, right? All these, uh, all these different things. Now, imagine that you make this, uh, this, this cake, and it's just, uh, it's great. And, uh, and I take a bite, and as I take a bite, I find a hair in it, all right? Is that possible? Yeah? Now, should I then conclude that you intentionally put that hair in there? Hopefully not, right? Maybe you're just really angry at something that I've taught at some point, and so you're, you know... Just, just putting hair all in your food. No, that's not the way. It, I, I recognize in that moment, I don't go and I write down the recipe and I add the word hair in there. I recognize that's unintentional. You didn't mean to put that. That's not a recipe. Likewise, that's not, that, that's not an ingredient in the recipe. Likewise, the fact that there are unbelievers that make it into entrance in the church doesn't mean that the church should have unbelievers. It's accidental. It's incidental. They've just simply made it past our defenses. Does that make sense, the difference there? All right, and so uh, this plays into the differences between what uh, um, Augustine called the, the visible versus the invisible church. I've drawn a little uh, illustration uh, here. So you have on this outer circle, that's the visible church. On this inner circle, that is the uh, invisible church. So the invisible church is the church as God sees it. Whereas the visible church is simply the church as we see it. So not all who are members of the visible church are actually members of the invisible church. The visible church is simply anyone who professes faith in Christ. The invisible church is those who actually have a regenerate heart, right? This is those who are actually in Christ, not just in a church. There's a difference uh, there. So the visible versus the invisible church. So they overlap but they aren't, uh, aren't the same. You're a part of the visible church simply by profession of faith and baptism, but you're a member of the invisible church only on the basis of a regenerate heart, by actually being elect, by being uh, in Christ. And so you see there are these two different spheres. So when promises are made, when biblical promises are made, when God promises eternal life, He doesn't promise it to the visible church. He promises it to the invisible church. When he says all things work together for good, uh, all of these promises are made to the invisible church. But when I'm preaching, I'm preaching to the visible church because I don't actually know who is in this circle versus in this circle. Does that make sense? The visible versus invisible, uh, the church. And, uh, and so, uh, in other words, there is this idea that there are wolves in sheep's clothing. There are people who appear to be believers, but are not actually believers. This is part of the difficulty whenever you get to the warning passages in Scripture and those kinds of things, but we'll talk uh, about that more later. That is, who is the church? All of God's people for all of, uh, all of time uh, should be composed only of uh, the regenerate. I want to end just by talking a little bit about why does the church exist, and then we'll do some Q&A. So our, our mission statement here at uh, Parkway is that uh, we exist to glorify God by making 
disciples. That's our mission state, uh, statement. That's why we exist. Do so you see there, uh, discipleship is secondary to some degree, that it's the means, but the end is glorification. We exist to glorify God. All things exist to glorify God. The means by which we think we should glorify God is by making disciples. So we glorify Him by worshiping. We glorify Him by edifying believers. We glorify Him by evangelizing the lost. All of these are means under the umbrella of, uh, of discipleship. So you see, why does the church exist? There's various purposes. There's a doxological purpose that we exist to worship. There's a covenantal purpose that we exist to be in relationship with each other, to be in covenant with each other, that we have certain responsibilities to love one another, to serve one another, to encourage one another, and all of the different one another's of Scripture. And there's also a missional aspect, that we exist to take this gospel beyond these walls and to serve others. So there's an upward focus of the church, there's an inward focus of the church, and there's an outward focus of the church. When I say upward, I mean our disposition towards God. When I say inward, I mean our disposition toward each other. And when I say outward, I mean our disposition toward uh, the lost world. And, uh, and, and what uh, we need to recognize is that is a very intentional order. Upward, inward, and outward. That uh, that, that should be the, the order and our priority and our preferences should flow through that particular uh, spectrum. Lots of churches mix up that order. That's what happens in like really super seeker-sensitive churches, that they put evangelism before discipleship. They put their outreach, that is their outward focus, before their inward focus. That's why their sermons tend to be much more watered down, and they never actually move on from milk to meat because they're just trying to hit the lowest common uh, denominator. They, they want to just simply get converts but not uh, disciples. Spurgeon talked about this. He said, I believe that one reason why the church of God at this present moment has so little influence over the world it's because the church, because the world has so much influence over the church. The very church which the world likes best is sure to be that which God abhors. So there's an upward, there's an inward, there's an outward focus of the church, and it needs to be in that order. The upward focus is worship and holiness and things like that. The inward focus, discipleship, encouragement, care for each other. The outward focus, evangelism, missions, and care for each other. And though there is an order, there, uh, none of these are unimportant. None of these are peripheral. All of these are commanded. While we should prioritize the first two over the third, we can't neglect the third uh, in light uh, of that. So, what's our purpose? To bear witness to the kingdom by reflecting the glory and goodness of God to each other and to the world. That's why the church uh, exists. And we'll talk more about how that relates to like local churches and membership and baptism and all that kind of stuff as we go along. But for now, I'm going to ask Zachary to come up, and hopefully you texted in some questions. Otherwise, Zach has a Abbott and Costello routine, and he's going to play both the parts of Abbott and Costello. All right, question the first. So we've got some good questions uh, in here. One quick clarifier, though, before we get into the questions. Can you clarify just briefly when we say we don't want lost people in the church, the difference between meaning in the church assembly versus meaning in church membership? So uh, when we're talking about the church, we're talking about the, uh, who constitutes the actual uh, body and bride of Christ. When I say we don't want lost people in the church, I simply mean we don't want lost people who are uh, admitted into membership and told you are a part of the people of God. 
We absolutely want lost people to come to services. We absolutely want lost people to come to theological equipping. We absolutely want lost people to come to our worship services. We want them to come to our community groups. We want them to be in our lives. We want them to come to our houses. We want to have a relationship with them. Again, there's this missional outward focus. But what I'm talking about is what is the essence who actually constitutes the people of God, and that is not those who do not love and trust Jesus. Does that help? That's great. Okay, some questions. Does denominationalism show that the church is broken or rich in diversity? Ooh, that's a good question. Uh, I'll give a few thoughts, and then I will will kick it to you. Here's what's really, really difficult when it comes to denominationalism. This is really the failure of the Reformation. The Reformation, in a sense, is a failure because it leads to a divided church. There should ultimately, ideally, be no division in the church. Okay? What you have up until 1054 with uh, the division between the Roman Catholic and the Greek Orthodox Church is you just had one church. Teaching was uniform. Doctrine was uniform. The church was uniform. You just had one church. That's originally what the word Catholic means. It means universal. There's just one universal church. Here's the good part about that. It shows unity. You have quality control. If you, be, if you uh, buy a McDonald's franchise, you can't just start selling sushi or whatever you want. There's quality control because you belong to McDonald's. There was the same thing when there was only one denomination, if you want to say it that way, in Roman Catholicism. Okay? So in some senses, the Reformation is a failure because it leads to a fractured church. Here's the benefit, though, of Protestantism and having a bunch of denominations. You really have to pick which is the lesser of two evils. Yes, the church is too divided. Yes, there are like a thousand denominations. Should it be that divided? No. But that is a better alternative than some guy up in the Vatican telling us all what we should believe, and that guy drifts and gets off, and then the whole thing becomes corrupt, okay? And so that's the difficulty. The benefit of Roman Catholicism is the unity. That is more of a biblical idea. The benefit of Protestantism is you have a way to protect yourself when there's corruption at the top or other groups start to drift. You can protect your church. Okay, so that's, that's, that's just kind of the trade-off. It's kind of like, uh, you know, when, when America decides that there will be, you know, a separation of church and state and people will be free to pursue whatever religion they want. In one sense, that's good because now you're not bound by somebody else. The downside of that is then people get off into all kinds of weird stuff. And so, uh, and so I, I think that denominationalism is good in that it says the Bible and the Bible alone is our ultimate authority. And the Bible should be interpreted by each individual believer. Okay, that's where it's good. The downside of being a Protestant is there is too much division. There's too much division. Now, to be fair, you also have some of that division within Roman Catholicism. They just don't break as a new denomination. You just have different churches that hold different views, but all call themselves Roman Catholic. And so they they run into some of the same issues, but those are my kind of initial thoughts on uh, denominations. We're having a whole lesson uh, coming up later in the semester uh, on denominations. so We'll be able to talk more about that then. Yeah, so um, I would hold off on some of the denominational talk because uh, we're going to have a lesson on it. I think the Reverend Dr. Steve is going to be teaching, so he's going to use all dental uh, images and illustrations. You have a bunch of teeth, but one mouth. You yeah. know, it's only one mouth, but a bunch of teeth, <laughs> something like that. <clears throat> I'm sorry. I just... Uh, it's a gift. So uh, It's a gift. Yeah, I, uh, I think it's an it's a unfortunate uh, reality that is probably the best we can do in light of doctrinal differences. And so uh, I, I remember, I think you actually were with me. There was a, a guy who uh, we went and got barbecue, and he had this vision. He was a college student. He had this vision that was uh, really want to uh, just kind of pursue the death of all denominations. And I thought, you're like 19, man. I don't know that you can accomplish that. 
And, uh, and so uh, he hadn't thought through, though, all of the different implications, like to say, how is it that we would have a church that both practices paedo-baptism and not paedo-baptism, credo-baptism? Like, there is no way to do that. If one group of elders think that you have to, you're compelled, you are com- commanded by God in Scripture to baptize your kids, and another group of elders think that is actually sinful to baptize your unbelieving infant kids, how are they going to, to practice baptism? How can you be charitable in this particular issue? So there is a sense in which, uh, again, as we talked about here, the more that you have these distinct views as you reflect upon the sanctity and uh, apostolicity of the church, the, the, the more difficult it's going to be to really stress unity and, uh, and Catholicity. And so are denominations a good thing uh, in and of themselves? No. But are they a good thing in light of doctrinal differences? And I think the answer to that is yes, because it allows us to uh, participate and to cooperate with other churches uh, in, uh, in ways that are helpful without sacrificing theological convictions and those kind of things. All right, the next question I'm, I'm going to uh, mention briefly, but then skip over just because we just put out a resource on this. The question is, are Roman Catholic Christians brothers? What should Protestants think of Roman Catholics? We just put out a blog last week or the week before on that. So if you go to the Parkway website, there's a blog called uh, What Should Protestants Think About Roman Catholics? And so the short answer is, yes, there are saved Roman Catholics. It's not a cult like Mormonism or like uh, Jehovah's Witnesses or the Christian Science Movement. They don't deny the deity of Christ or the Trinity or think that you'll become a god of your own planet, some of the weird things the cults believe. But, they, uh, but there are some doctrinal differences, and so check out that blog. Uh, that will save, uh, save us some time, and that'll be a helpful resource uh, to you. Uh, here's a question somebody wrote in, which I think is uh, interesting, and then we'll spend a lot of time on a really juicy question that like five of y'all wrote in on. So uh, why, and I, I don't know that we would say it this way, but if you could kind of elaborate on some of this, it's why is discipleship more important than evangelism? So I'll, I'll give a few initial thoughts and then, and then kick it to you. I would not say that discipleship is more important than evangelism. I think that confuses the idea of importance. I would say that it's discipleship, though, and not evangelism, which is the mission. That is the Great Commission. The Great Commission is not go and make shallow converts of all nations. The Great Commission is to go baptize and teach. And it's through all three of those means that you actually make disciples. Okay. So let me say it stronger. God's goal is not to have just a bunch of half-baked Christians that barely get into heaven. That's not the goal. The goal is to have full-fledged, sold-out, Jesus-loving, Bible-loving disciples. That's the goal. And so we have to remember the goal is going to be a lifestyle of discipleship. That's what produces long-term change. We as Americans have a tendency to put the biggest focus just on evangelism because we're pragmatists. We think that it's about numbers. God must be trying to just get the maximum amount of people saved, despite the fact that the Bible says the road is wide that leads to destruction and only a few find the actual narrow path. What if God's goal is to receive glory through having deep well-made, well-rounded disciples and not just getting people saved. And so I wouldn't say that a discipleship is more important than evangelism. You have to have both. You can't disciple somebody fully if they're not a believer. Uh, and uh, so you have to have both. So I wouldn't say it's more important, but I would say it is the mission. And so everything that we uh, do and think, whatever, we need to think through that lens. Not just, am I getting this person saved? Yes and amen to evangelism. We're going to have an entire class on evangelism and missions this semester on this topic. But you need to realize the goal is a full-fledged disciple. Okay? So you need to judge the faithfulness of Parkway, of our elders, of our groups, all those kind of things by based on whether or not we're making disciples. So, other thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, I mean, I would just say, I mean, you could think of uh, these two like circles. If this is 
discipleship, and this is evangelism. Evangelism exists within discipleship. You can make, uh, anytime you're making disciples, you're also doing evangelism, but you can do evangelism without making disciples. And so whenever we talk about discipleship being more important than evangelism, we mean because evangelism exists within discipleship. It's kind of like the difference between going to throw a football and playing the game of football. In order to play the game of football, you have to throw a football, but just because you go out and throw a football doesn't mean you're playing football. Does that make sense? I've said the word football like a thousand times uh, in there. And, uh, and so uh, anytime that you are doing true discipleship, it includes evangelism. The problem is a lot of churches want to do evangelism without also doing this. And this is the mission, not just this. And, uh, and so it's not, a, it's not like those are two separate things. It's that one is a larger category that the other fits within. And so there's a way to do this that is unfaithful to this. But there is no way to do this faithfully without also including that. That's what I'd say. Okay. Uh, this is probably time for, our, this will probably be our last question because several people asked uh, the same thing here. Does the U.S. have a responsibility for protecting the nation of Israel? Okay. Uh, or different things around that. What should we think about physical Israel, uh, 144,000 in Revelation? We have a theological equipping on how to read the book of Revelation where we deal with that. Uh, so I'll just do this one. Does the U.S. have a responsibility for protecting the nation of Israel? I'll give some initial thoughts and then I kick it over to, uh, to you. So when you say, does the U.S. have a responsibility to protect the nation of Israel? We have to clarify something that is embedded in the question that's not made explicit. When you say a responsibility, do you mean a national governmental responsibility or do you mean a scriptural responsibility? Those are different, okay? The U.S. has a responsibility to protect Britain. We're in treaties with England, right? But that doesn't mean that in so doing, we're fulfilling biblical prophecy. And so the question people are asking is, is it part of some fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy to have to support the nation of Israel today? My view is no. My view is that if you want to support the nation of Israel politically, go for it. They are a great ally. They're a great ally to have in the Middle East. They are an established nation, etc. But if you think that what happened in 1948 with the uh, beginning of the state of Israel was some sort of fulfillment of prophecy, I would say that you've probably misunderstood how we fulfill and understand Old Testament prophecies made to Israel today. Jeff talked about this. All the prophecies made to Israel are not really just about Israel. They are made about Jesus. Those prophecies are directly applied in the church. The church is called the Israel of God in Galatians 6. And so the way that we understand Israel changes in light of the true Israelite coming and saving us. That's really important to to keep in mind. And so you also have to understand when Israel became a nation in 1948, that, that wasn't the promise of the Old Testament. Their national borders today are not the same as they were in the Old Testament. Okay, Uh, Israel today is primarily made up of atheists and agnostics. God's promise to Israel was not one day, I will redivide the boundaries of the land, and then your country will be run by atheists, and you'll be surrounded by your enemies, always on the constant brink of nuclear war. That's not the promise of the Old Testament, okay? The promise is that the wolf lies down with the lamb, and everything is good. That's fulfilled in Christ, as Christ makes Israel take over the whole world. I don't mean in a political sense, I mean in a spiritual sense, that God's glory goes out from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So the short answer is, if you want to support Israel politically, you can. But it's not a fulfillment of prophecy because we are Israel. The church is the Israel of God. Jesus is the true Israelite, and everybody linked to Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, is how those promises are fulfilled. Other thoughts? Yeah, I, th- I think we need to do a better job as Christians of, of recognizing nuance 
in conversation. And so what I think we tend to do is we tend to swing the pendulum from one side to the other. And so uh, we want to either go full on Zionism and say that Israel has a divine mandate and divine right to that land, which is interesting in light of the Old Testament, whereby uh, God says, if you do not obey my commands, if you do not love me with a, a, a whole heart, uh, the land will spit you out. I will vomit you out of the land. That is the curse of the Old Testament for unbelieving Israel, is they will be exiled out of the land. Most Israelites today are atheists. Most Israelites today that live in Israel are agnostic. I'm not just simply saying they don't believe in the Trinitarian God. They don't even believe in the God of their conception from the Old Testament. They would tell you they do not believe in Yahweh or Jehovah or anything like that. And, uh, and so that is the, the condition. So what we do is we swing the pendulum from that, uh, and, uh, and then we want to say, well, then if you disagree with Zionism, if you disagree that Israel has this divine right to the land, you must be anti-Semitic. No, the church is not anti-Semitic either. There's this picture of, of Israel being gathered back into God's people. We talked about that in Romans 11, that they have temporarily been blinded, but one day they will be regrafted in. So our heart towards Israel is to love them and to care for them. But that is a different perspective than to say that they have a divine right to the land. Now, do I think that we should be uh, uh, allies with them because they are a democratic um, uh, country in the midst of... Uh, other countries that are not, I do think that. And so I, I think we have a political responsibility to them, but not a theological responsibility to them. Uh, but we do have theological responsibility in the sense of praying for them, that, uh, that many of those Jews would have the, the, the veil removed from their eyes that they might see the glory and beauty of the triune God and come to know and love and worship Jesus. Okay. You want to pray for us? Sure. That's it. Thank you, by the way, for ending the class with the, for one minute on the most spicy question that we could possibly do. Uh, if you have questions about any of that, we would love to chat. I mean, we're trying to, to cover in a minute uh, something that is really difficult. And so if anything I said strikes you as being anti-Semitic, come and chat with me. If anything we said strikes you on the other end as saying, oh, so you, you are just pro-Israel and everything, then come and chat with us. We, again, we want to do nuance because I think that's what is, uh, is demanded by the conversation. But let's pray. Father, thank you for, uh, for the church. I just confess that uh, whether it's the universal church or even a local church, that it is, uh, it's messy, it's hard, it's inconvenient, it's uncomfortable, uh, and yet at the same time, it is, uh, it's beautiful and glorious and good, and we desperately need it, Lord, that we need to be uh, saved not only from sin, but from ourselves, from individualism, from, uh, from being sort of isolated and insular. And so uh, I'm grateful for the gift that you've given us of the universal church and for its unity and for its sanctity and for its Catholicity and for its uh, apostolicity. And so just pray, Lord, that you would make Parkway a church that better reflects uh, your priority and purposes, that we might glorify you by making disciples. So would you help us to that end, we pray, uh, because you're a good father and you give good gifts and you've given us the church and your scriptures. And so prepare our hearts as we go forth from here to hear your uh, scriptures proclaimed. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.